Okay, now we come to the fourth vision in the book of Revelation. And I would like to invite you to actually pause this and read chapters 12, 13, and 14 before you go on with this teaching. All right, now, the subject of this is a different subject than any of the previous visions, and um, the subject is Israel. And Israel is pictured as a woman giving birth to a man-child, and we know that the man-child is Yeshua, Jesus. And so it gives that history of uh, Jesus being born and then dying, res being resurrected and ascending, and, and so on. The reason why Israel is being persecuted down through history is because she was selected to give birth to the man-child. And so now we see that the meaning of history is that it's a conflict between two kingdoms. First of all, you have the kingdom of this world, which is ruled by Satan. And people inadvertently, often, giving themselves to the enemy, devoting themselves to ambitions and lusts and the sin industries and so on and so on, all, maybe not realizing it, but pursuing this system of this world, which in the book of Revelation is called Babylon the Great. Okay, but Jesus comes into that system and challenges it, and it is his intention to replace that system with his kingdom, and he is coming back to do that. And that's the story in the book of Revelation. That's what the story of history is. You know, to, to see the meaning of history is to understand this conflict between the two kingdoms and to to realize that the king is returning. And so now we have a choice which side we're on, which kingdom we're serving. It's not just about going to heaven after we die. It's a choice of kingships. And who do we serve and what are our lives for? And okay, so we are created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we might Walk in them, okay? So it's a new purpose for life that we're given. It's a kingdom. It's not a religion. It's a kingdom, okay? Now, Israel stands in the midst of this conflict in a very unique position because she gave birth to the king. Jesus is the son of David, and he is coming back to Jerusalem, and he will reign on earth from Jerusalem, for a thousand years. And that is where the thing ends. That's where we we're moving. That's where history is moving to. And finally, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he hands over this vast work of redemption to the Father. And so the Father's original intentions for creation are ultimately fulfilled. Israel is going to be persecuted because Israel gave birth to the man-child. And also, those will be persecuted who were the uh, the fruit, the, the 
the people who came to Jesus as a result of this great event, they also will be persecuted. So Jews and Christians, that's what it's saying at the end of chapter 12, will be persecuted by the evil one who has been building up this whole system all along. And the Jews and the Christians oppose this system. They're on the other side, and they're moving in the opposite direction, and the enemy is going to persecute all of us together. So chapter 12 refers to the persecution that's going to happen over a long period of time, actually, and it's going back to Hosea chapter 3 and many other passages that deal with this. Chapter 3, verse 4, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol, and afterward the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So that's, that's the scenario about Israel. They're going to be apart from and away from their home, the Temple Mount, the, uh, the, the, the city, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. They're going to be scattered. They're going to be uh, 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 robbed of their inheritance for a season. But that season will come to an end, and then God is going to bring them back. That is one of the most basic promises of Scripture that there is. That's what's being described here in chapter 12. But then that all culminates in what we see in chapter 13, the arising of the man of lawlessness, who's going to use this whole worldwide system that he's been cleverly and carefully developing, a worldwide system, Babylon the Great, the world system, that's based on self-centeredness and lust for power and all of these things, people inadvertently going after the enemy and helping him instead of Jesus. And so the enemy is going to use that, and he's going to, to come against Israel and the Christians, and he's going to try to get rid of all Jews, and he's going to try to persecute all Christians. And, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Okay, and this is a promise. That's not a very um, uh, upbuilding promise, I'd have to say. But the promises of God in the midst of that, you see, he's giving us the scenario in order to drop the promises into the scenario. Okay, so he's giving us enough of what's going to happen just so that he can Give us the promises. Okay, so all of this is patterned after an event in Israel's history that if you're not a Jew, you're probably not aware of this piece of Israel's history. And so chapter 12 and chapter 13 will make more sense if you understand this piece of Israel's history, okay? So there was a three-and-a-half-year period of intense suffering for, for Jews. Um, and this happened in the year 168, and it lasted until 164 B.C. And the person that did this was called Antiochus IV, and he called himself Epiphanes, 
which means a manifestation of God. He considered himself to be God, in other words. And that would tell you right away that this man is a demonized man. He is under the control of demons. And what is happening here is that the enemy is trying to get rid of Judaism and Jews to prevent the coming, the first coming of the Messiah. All of this is described in the book of Daniel, and especially Antiochus is described even to the the details of his reign in the second century BC, and uh, and he is used then as a model or a prototype of this Antichrist at the end of the age. In fact, you see a very explicit uh, description of the things that happened in the reign of Antiochus, and then those things are cut off, and most interpreters say that what comes after that is end-time stuff that's based on the prototype of Antiochus. Jesus also talked that way when he said that the, the abomination that makes desolate that the, that, the, that the prophecy of Daniel spoke of. When you see this, then know that the, the king is at the very gates. Okay, so what, what is all of this? What does it mean? Well, it's based on the prototype of what happened under Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, and so what did he do in, in 168 BC? He comes in, he's already uh, the, the ruler of the region, but in 168 BC, he comes into Jerusalem and immediately slaughters 80,000 Jews. And then he establishes laws. You can't circumcise your children on the eighth day or at any other time. You can't observe the Sabbath day. You can't do the feast days. You, you, and he is, and he put, he goes right into the temple, goes into the Holy of Holies, and erects a statue of Zeus there. And so he is, he is declaring war against Judaism and all Jews. And this is going to be fierce. This is fierce persecution for three and a half years. So that's where the number three and a half comes from. It has a meaning. And, and, and it, it means, it's a symbolic number that means a time where we have to just, we have to just go through opposition and suffering for a season, but that opposition and suffering is going to end. And so the three and a half refers to a brief time, a time that is going to end. And of course, historically, what happened was Judas Maccabeus uh, staged a revolt, and that time of suffering did end after three and a half years. But now the three and a half years is used as a symbolic number. I do not believe it's to be a literal number the way so many interpreters believe that it is. It's a symbolic number referring to all kinds of different circumstances where Jews and Christians are going to have to go through temporary suffering. But the the goal of God through this is to get us to look beyond the suffering to what's in the future, the promises of God. 
That's why I believe it's important that we look at the promises. Okay, so the, the number three and a half appears in the book of Daniel and then also in the book of Revelation expressed different ways, like three and a half or a time, times, and half a time. Okay, one plus two plus a half. Or 1,260 days, which is in, it's just another expression for the same period of time. It's a, it's a period of time of suffering, temporary suffering. And that's the important thing to remember about it, temporary suffering. Okay. So these are, these are symbolic numbers, but they're literal events. And it's really important for us to get this concept. Got, uh, John is expressing himself in symbolic ways, but the things that he's referring to are literal. They are historic events. And they're given to us so that when we go through those events, we won't be able to necessarily come up with timelines and uh, future understandings of details, you know, um, we will understand the promises. It's, it's for promises, not timelines. And so he's giving us just enough of the future so that he'll be able to drop the promises into the center of those. And so now we move on to chapter 14, which is where the, the promises are. And chapter 14 stays true to the patterns we've seen in the last two visions, okay? So... Um, in the last two visions, we've had a, 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 a series of seven, okay? And then the, the sixth and the seventh are separated out. And then you have the promises right there where they're most needed. This is at the time of crisis. This is at the time just before Jesus comes back when we need to understand what the promises are. Well, it's the same pattern here, even though we don't have a series of seven, but it's leading through history until we get to the end, which is the end of chapter 14. That's the end of, of this period of history when Jesus returns. How do we know that? Well, the things that happen at the end are what chapter 14 describes at the end. Okay, and that's two harvests. One harvest is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 13. All those parables of the kingdom of God, and he says, the harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. And so this is a picture of the angels coming. He's coming back with all his holy ones, and he's going to harvest us. Well, what does that mean? Well, a harvester takes a sickle and 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 raises up the, the wheat and carries it off to the barn where the wheat is stored. And, they, they, you know, they do the... The, the, the sifting of the wheat from the, from the grain stalks. But the whole picture is the, the people of God who have allowed themselves to become obedient to the ways of the king, they are lifted up. So this is a picture of the, the rapture of the church. But then there's another harvest which ain't so good, you know, and that's from, uh, Isaiah chapter 63 
and you read about that and it's it's a it's like the picture is trampling the vineyard the vine trampling the grapes at the end of the harvest of grapes and john uses the word sickle even though you don't harvest grapes with a sickle but i think the purpose of that is to point out that these two harvests even though they come from different parts of scripture these two harvests are going to be the the two things that happen at the end of the age there's a good harvest and there's a bad harvest there's a harvest of commendation and there's a harvest of condemnation and so both happen at the end of the age when jesus comes back the angels are going to be doing both at the same time and then before we get to that okay this is chapter 14 before we get to the harvesting we we get all these promises again and so here we have a picture of what the conclusion of all of this is going to be. We have a picture of 144,000, which is the number of perfect government. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. We should not think of this as a literal number, but it's those who have been selected from both the Jew and the Gentile who have come to Christ, and, you know, Jew, uh, Gentiles grafted into Israel, so the, the promises belong to us, but that does not necessarily mean that all of us are going to come back to earth and reign on earth with Jesus. I, I refer you back to the teaching of the uh, of Irenaeus and the early church fathers. Remember that? Where he said, some of us in heaven, some of us on earth reigning, helping Jesus to do this work on earth, some of us in the holy city, that new Jerusalem, which is between earth and heaven, designed to bring a harmony between earth and heaven. I don't understand all of this, but God is just giving us enough of a picture to, to realize there's going to be something happening. And the early church fathers recognized that where we go after we die and what we're doing is up to God, and we just have to trust him. But these are the options that they understood as to the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, so 144,000 refers to perfect government, which is going to be established from Jerusalem over all the nations of the earth. Then promise two, every individual in that time is going to receive the gospel. Now, try to understand this, that we have the, the role at this present time of this this period of time of the Holy Spirit, the age of the Holy Spirit, that uh, we are to bring the gospel to all the ethne, all of the people groups, the nations. But that doesn't mean that every person has received the gospel. And, and what must happen is a continuation until every single person becomes a follower of Jesus and understands his gospel of the kingdom. It's a gospel of his kingdom over all the nations. So that's what we have promised too. Um, and it's based on Isaiah 66. Let's uh, look at that here. At the end of Isaiah, we see what the, uh, what the actual um, millennial reign looks like a little bit. And Isaiah 66, 
Uh, I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, and then he lists several of the nations, to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord, and so on. And it it just, it shows that the evangelism of the gospel of the kingdom keeps going during the millennial reign. Well, that's what we have again in uh, chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. And then finally, uh, we have promise three and four. First of all, that Babylon the Great will be crushed, utterly crushed. And it's just a, a brief glimpse of that here, but that is what we're going to find in vision number six. And finally, Promise number four, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The enemy wants to threaten us and terrorize us with visions of Christians being beheaded and churches going up in flames, and he wants to scare us. But God has aimed a promise into our hearts that will take the terror away, and he wants us to know how precious and what a privilege it is to die for the king.